I have a third announcement. Um, uh, if you received an email from me this week claiming to be me but with a different email address, uh, I just want to announce that I do not urgently need for you to get a Google Play gift card for a cancer patient that I promised as a birthday gift. I am not stranded somewhere in Europe. I don't need for you to send a large amount of money from another country, and I don't need for you to cash a check for me. I just want to clarify that, okay? So if you get another false email from me, you know that that's not me. All right. Hey, for the next four weeks or so, we're going to go through this critical section in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 23, uh, uh, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And Paul's laying out a case. Now, before uh, he completes this idea of the gospel, this particular section deals with uh, what is necessary for us to receive the good news. You see, before we receive the good news, we have to understand the bad news. For us to embrace, wow, this is great news, we have to be able to understand and accept there's bad news in it. You know, unfortunately, the church in America is like Disneyland. Uh, you know, Disneyland is known to be the happiest place on earth, right? And so when you go there, Disneyland uh, uh, you know, wants you to forget about your worries and your strife. Uh, they want you to hakuna matara. It's our problem-free philosophy. They want you to be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test. Right? But we're going to go opposite of that. The passage dictates that for the next few weeks, that I as a preacher will make you feel uncomfortable, challenged, guilty, ashamed, and convicted. Because that's what the passage dictates. I'm going to show you, and if you're here at church for the first time, I feel bad for you, but my goal is to show you that God finds you guilty and deserving of his wrath. I'm going to deliver bad news for you. We're going to look at bad news by looking at the charge against mankind and the judgment against mankind and the charge in particular will be against what I call the immoral. So if you have not done so yet, turn your Bibles to this just so important book in the Bible, uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse nine, uh, verse starting, starting verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We begin f with 4. He talked about verses 16 and 17 uh, that we need uh, salvation by faith. Why do we need salvation by faith? Why, why do we need good news? Verse 18 said, because for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, we talk about the love of God, and, and Paul will get to the love of God, but he also says that as real as is the love of God, there is a, a real wrath of God. It is personal, deep, and emotional anger of God. You know, some wonder why or how a loving God can be wrathful, but I want to say that a loving God must also 
uh, be an angry God at times. He must emotionally, consistently, justly be angry at evil. Now, let me give you an example for those of you dads. Dads here, right? Especially those of you who have daughters. You know, remember uh, when your daughters were a little, little and you, you would take them by the hand and, and you would walk them to preschool and say, hey, come on, come on in, don't be scared, right? Or you take them shopping and, 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 and you, you walk them around, you take them to McDonald's and, and buy them a Happy Meal. If you love your daughter, right, you would hold them gently by the hand and, and just be a dad. Imagine you're, you're, you're taking your toddler daughter by the hand and walking in the shopping mall and a random strange uh, uh, person goes by and just slaps your daughter and just, just walks by and just bam! She falls, she's just sobbing uncontrollably. Let me ask you a question. How would a loving father react? If a father says, oh, if he reacts with no emotion, I would say to you, that's not a loving father. A loving father must become angry when, when his child is threatened in that way and hurt in that way. Wrath is the opposite, opposite side of love. Uh, a loving God must also be a wrathful God. He declares, Paul declares that the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all of mankind. He pronounces them guilty, deserving of judgment. What are they guilty of? Two things. He, uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness. Uh, that which is ungodly against God, it is the breaking of the great commandment, though we shall love the Lord our God. Uh, it is uh, breaking of the first four of the Ten Commandments. It is uh, treating God not with the honor that he deserves. Uh, not only are we uh, deserving of his wrath because of ungodliness, but because of unrighteousness. Now, the Greek word is interesting here. Uh, it is a combination of uh, two, uh, the prefix and the word. The prefix is ah, and uh, the word is dk, which is um, not justice, not justice. What we are guilty of is injustice. As people get angry at injustice we see in this world, so a loving God becomes angry when we are unjust uh, to others. We find, God finds us guilty of murder and hatred. God finds us guilty of rape and lust, God uh, finds us guilty of oppression and apathy. God finds humanity guilty of a lack of love. Now, there's a second part of the charger. God uh, is charging us with idolatry and immorality, but he's also charging us with culpability through suppression culpability through suppression now this uh, may not make a, uh, a lot of sense when you just first read it but it'll make sense to you when i uh, continue okay um he will address an objection that uh the his audience will have because he said no no you're guilty of idolatry 
and immorality. And the objection that people will have is, but I did not know. How can I be found guilty of something that I was not aware of? It's a reasonable defense. How can one be found culpable when there is a lack of knowledge? Now, Paul immediately attacks that argument in verse 19. He says, though you may argue that you did not know that there is a God or a moral lawgiver, he argues, verse 19, for because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul is saying that every single person alive has a basic knowledge of God. The reason being is God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God made his invisible, eternal, divine nature evident to mankind. He says that they have been known. Now, Paul is not arguing that every person uh, knows and understands the Judeo-Christian God, nor the person of Jesus Christ. But as humanity peers into the sky, and as we deep down, uh, look deep into our, the atom, that people will have an understanding. A, they will see the handprint of the Almighty Creator. That when we see the, the, the cross-culture and cross-time that people all share, though maybe slightly different, certain moral values that we understand there must be a moral law giver. John Stott, the theologian, says this, In other words, the God who in himself is invisible and unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable through what he has made. The creation is a visible disclosure of the invisible God, an intelligible disclosure of the otherwise unknown God. Just as artists reveal themselves in what they draw, paint, and sculpt, so the divine artist has himself uh, revealed himself in his creation. He's saying, you know, you perceive that there is a creator. He continues, with another further objection. The objection may be, yes, yeah, so, so I understand that there must be some sort of a, a, a primary beginning, maybe a God with a small g, a, a deity with a small d, but uh, does that God involve mor morality? Is there an absolute morality to it? Now, verse 21, okay? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see the argument? I think this is just brilliant. Okay. He says... In some, they did not know because they chose not to know. They did not know because they did not want to know. Verse 18 said they, 
by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Listen carefully. Paul is making the charge that humanity, mankind, uh, knew intuitively that there is a moral lawgiver, but they suppressed that truth because they didn't want to deal with the morality of a moral lawgiver. Does that make sense? People knew that there's a, uh, a, a creator of right and wrong, but they didn't want to accept it because now they would have to deal with the consequence of their being right and wrong. So they chose to be indifferent to God by not uh, giving him thanks or honoring him. Uh, this led to them, uh, their thinking becoming futile, their hearts becoming uh, darkened. They be believe in their futility so much they claimed to be wise, but they were foolish. They worshiped creation as opposed to the creator. Listen, they did not believe because they did not want to believe. They suppressed the truth. J.D. Greer uh, expl uh, explained it with this imagery. You know, like you're growing up, you went to uh, the swimming pool, right? Or you went to your friends or your school swimming pool, and sometimes you would take a, a beach ball, a, a ball filled with air, and whatever game you were playing, you, uh, there were times you would uh, push that ball into the water. But the ball, by its buoyancy, would want to come up out of the air but you would suppress it, you would push it down. And so what Paul is saying is that um, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the moral giver wants to come up and reveal itself, but because of unrighteousness, because we don't want it to be revealed, we press it down. We know God, but we don't want to acknowledge Him because we don't want to acknowledge that there is a moral lawgiver. Don Timmer was a private in the 89th Infantry Division of the 3rd Army under General George Patton during World War II. He's an old man, but he gave, he recounted this particular story late in his age. His particular division was the first uh, division among the Allied forces that liberated the first concentration camp. When they got there, they realized that the German soldiers who were uh, operating this concentration camp had tried to hide their evidence by burning as much of the body as possible, but they left in a hurry, so they weren't finished. When they got there, there were thousands of uh, bodies. General Patton arrived, this rough uh, General, having observed all the atrocities, vomited. This particular town called Ordov in Germany was operating a, a concentration camp in the midst of the town folks. Patton went into the town, ordered all able people to come into the concentration camp to observe what had been going on. He also ordered that the corpses be buried, ordered the town folks to, to dig the graves for these corpses to be buried. And so they did, including the mayor and his wife. They were about 80% done, and they promised to come back the next day to finish burying the, the bodies of the victims of the concentration camp. 
the next day arrived, then the mayor and, and the wife did not show up. When they went to look for them, they found that they had hung themselves. Left a note in German, and this private Don Timmer, he had some elementary German training, uh, interpreted the note, and it said, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. You know what I'm talking about? There are times we don't know because we just don't want to know. We all inherently know there are right and wrongs. We can claim ignorance, but we know there is a right and a wrong. We may differ, we may honestly differ on where the line is, but we all know that there's a right and there's a wrong. Listen, the most ardent atheists who claim, who may uh, claim that there is no absolute moral lawgiver, that morality is relative or a, a byproduct of culture. But you take that same ardent atheist if his child is murdered and the murderer says, but there is no absolute morality. So what I did was not morally wrong. And also, I did not know that killing your child was illegal. So I claim ignorance. Even the most ardent uh, atheist in that moment would say, no, 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 but it's still wrong what you did. You see, murdering is guilt is wrong regardless of knowledge of morality or not. The courts have determined that ignorance is not a defense. And part of the reason is that we know, everyone really knows, we all know, but oftentimes we choose not to know. God so lays down the judgment against mankind, against the immoral in verses 24 through 32. How does God reveal the wrath of God? And that's how we began, right? How does God um, punish the guilty? Now, it's interesting. Instead of uh, punishing them, he does something far more painful. Look at verses, verse 24, 26, 28. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. So this is how God uh, pours his wrath upon the immoral or mankind. He allows them to carry out what is in their heart, what is in their passions, what is in their mind. As one commentator writes, that the wrath of God operates not by God's intervention, but precisely uh, by his not intervening, by letting men and women go their own way. He, first of all, uh, uh, God gives them up to the lust of their heart in verse 24. He gave them up in the lust of their heart. Heart. The lust. Uh, the, the word here is as a prefix called epi, and the word, the root word is thumia, and epi is over, 
And the, the root word is desire. It's an over-desire. It's a, it's a basic desire that someone has, but you just go extra with it. Now, extra, that's a, that's a millennial word, right? I, I, I think. Is that, is that, did I use that right? Did I use that right? You're so extra? I don't know. Okay. I better find a different word. Okay. Someone who overindulges uh, in that natural, God-given, original desire. You see, uh, when God wants to punish them, he says, okay, I'll let you be what you want to be. I'll let you do what you want to do. And so what God had originally gave to us as good, we've made an idol of it. It could be something as simple as the taste of a fine wine, eating a fatty tuna sushi. It could be uh, getting a thrill out of a new ride. It could be sitting and applauding your child as your child wins a, a trophy. Or it could be holding hands with your partner. Something simple, innocent, and pure, and God-given. But when we epithumea, and when we overindulge, we make it something that it was never meant to be. It becomes an idol of us. Now, for me, I, I like sushi. Um, you know, I enjoy it, um, but I, I have to be, like, I, there's a confession on, on this in me. Um, I don't remember a time when I've gone to an all-you-can-eat sushi place and walked out feeling satisfied, like, oh, that was a good meal, and I'll, I'll explain why. Okay, I just, I consider sushi an expensive kind of a food, and so when, if I pay like $30 for all-you-can-eat sushi, you know what I'm thinking, right? I've got to stock up as much as possible. And I would test, I, I, I used to tell my kids this, we got to eat as much as possible so we get so sick of it so we won't want any more of it for a while. Like we've got to forget how, you know, awful it is, you know, so a few months later we, you know, pay for it again. And so I, I remember times when our staff, like the year end, okay, we're going you know, to do something nice. We're going to treat, you know, uh, the staff. What do we do? If we go eat sushi, I know what I do. I, I just keep ordering. And I'm one of those people that if they give sushi and, and there's rice and sushi, I, I have integrity. So I can't just, like, like hide the, the rice and the napkin like some of you evil people do. <laughs> I know what you do. All right? I can't do that. I have to eat the rice, too. And, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, if I go to Costco and buy a, a thing of, of salmon, I know how much that is, like $20. I got to eat at least that much sushi at this restaurant, right, along with the rice. And what was delicious in the beginning, at the end when I'm trying to walk out of there, trying to finish whatever's left over, and there's always this little sign they're going to charge you if you leave any, Right? When I'm, like, when I'm finishing up, I feel gross. Like, I don't want any more sushi. We take what is good and we epithumia it. We indulge in a way that it was never meant to be. That's the wrath of God. And it says here in verse 24 that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It sounds like something sexual. God gave them something good, but they overindulged. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creature than the creator. So they took what was a, a gift of God and they overindulged and made it a God. And they thought, this is what should fulfill me. And it became gross. Not only that, verse uh, 26. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. And, and, and verses 26 and 27, this is like the, the, the passage that, that, uh, that uh, theologians and preachers go to when we're talking about the, the topic, the sensitive topic of homosexuality, okay? Uh, I know we have like youth kids here, and so, um, but you know what, parents, don't worry, your kids probably know more than you think. And they probably know more than you do, actually, Right? Let's look at verse 26 and 27. Let's see if there's any ambiguity about what Paul is saying. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. Now, Tim Keller um, believes that there are two ways in which the church misunderstands or ignores the basic biblical teaching on this uh, sensitive, controversial topic. One of the ways in which the church kind of errors is when we try so hard to be relevant to culture that we no longer call sin, sin. But as Bank preached uh, last year, uh, I want, we want to be clear that uh, the attraction and the orientation is not sin, but it's the identification that says, well, I'm going to embrace it. There's nothing wrong with it. But the other way in which the church makes a mistake with this particular issue is that when we overemphasize or highlight or spotlight this one particular sin over all the other. Tim Keller kind of makes this point. Like if we have a friend who is a, a Hindu or someone who uh, is committing adultery, who, who, who is just like sleeping with a, 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 someone who is not their spouse, would we be kind to them? Would we embrace them? Would we say, hey, come to church with me? I think we would. But why is it that we treat homosexuality in a unique kind of a way. Like we're not as kind, that we think they need to fix that before they come here. Remember, um, verse 26 says that uh, the problem is that epithumeia, we overindulge. Now, um, if a married man, if a married man is sexually attracted to a, a woman who is not his wife, um, we, we won't argue about whether he was born with a propensity to lust after other women 
or somehow um, his interaction or the activities in his life compelled him to, to be attracted to uh, other women. It doesn't really matter, does it? What matters is, is he going to be faithful to his wife or is he going to do injustice to his wife? Let me tell you that there's uh, not a single uh, man or woman in this room who at one point in time in their life has not been tempted with emotionally or sexually been attracted to someone they should not have. Whether it be through fantasy or pornography. And God says, you know, we can be... uh, like pulled in that way, but it's what you are willing, what your will will allow you to do. Now, before we, we, we still are tempted to think that this particular issue is one that should rise above other issues, let's go to the next one. You know, and if, if Paul is kind of saying, you know, this is what the wrath of God is, is going up against, you would think there would be a crescendo, like, like, uh, like a worsening of the sin. Uh, it started with general immorality, and, and then it is this uh, second thing. And then third, you think, okay, what's worse than that, Okay. Because we oftentimes in the church think, well, that's them out there. Now verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Oh my goodness, okay, something good is coming. We think this this is really bad sin. Okay, what's next? Verse 29. And they were filled... With all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Inventors of evil for all the catapult students and parents, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Did you get this list? In case we wanted to say, well, that's them and we are not as bad, Paul lays out a case and says, no, 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 you deserve the wrath of God. You're guilty of idolatry and immorality. For some people, it's sexual, but this is perhaps how it displays itself in you. That Paul um, puts coveting, deceiving, Gossiping, being boastful, being disobedient to parents, and being heartless on the same category as all of these sins. You know, what's interesting is that uh, in our Christian culture, 
some we engage and battle with culture and say, well, that's sin, and we want to battle that. We don't want anything to do with that. But something like heartlessness, just being mean. You know what we call it? We say it's a temperament or personality. You know what we call gossiping? Well, it's what people just do. And so oftentimes, people will gather and say, you know, I, you know, I, I took my personality test and uh, ha, 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 I, I, I'm heartless. So I hurt people's feeling, but hey, that's just me. And when I get together with my girlfriends, yeah, we love to talk. We, you know, we're, just, we're just being brutally honest. Listen to what Paul says in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Not only we, do we do them, but we say, hey, it's okay. Listen, this is the bad news. Listen, this is, if, you, if you haven't been listening, listen to this. The bad news is that the immoral people that Paul is talking about, it's not them, but it's you. It's you. It's, it's us. Do me a favor. We're going to go through this exercise. This is one, the last thing that we'll kind of do and. And I'm going to ask the praise team to come out, the band to come up, and the elders to take their place uh, for the communion. But would you do me a favor? Would you close your eyes with me? Close your eyes with me. I want you to think of the person who most deserves the wrath of God. Who deserves the wrath of God? Who's the person that is more idolatrous and immoral than anyone else you know? Who's the person whose actions and attitudes you believe should cause them to go to hell? Who's the worst person? The most wicked person. maybe someone in your mind right now and an image of someone in the news, someone in history, someone that you know, but open your eyes for me. I want you to understand what Paul is trying to say to you and me. If we magnify other people's sins, their immorality, their idolatrousness, while we minimize our own, that reveals partially this idea that we are the immoral one. And when we close our eyes and we think of that person that, it is, that is most deserving of the wrath of God, the person that should come to your mind because you know yourself the best, it should be you, not anyone else. And we should be the one, and this is what Paul is saying, before you understand the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. You've got to understand how broken and wicked you really are. And so some 2,000 years ago, 
he sat with a group of disciples and, and if I can have the elders to come take their place. And he did not climb upon that cross when the disciples were at their best, but it was at their worst. When they denied him, when they betrayed, uh, when they uh, ran, uh, fled from him, uh, abandoned him. But at the same time, he passed the bread and said, this is my body, this is my blood. And I believe each one of those disciples, as they were were pondering the meaning of the Lord's Supper, they realized, how can he do this for me? And the man who penned these words in the book of Romans once said of himself, I am the, the, the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. And that bad news makes the good news good. So as the band begins, it will be a cue to you to come get a piece of bread, cup, go back to your seats, and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you to observe. If you're still uh, wrestling, I, I would ask you to just be in prayer.